Welcome to the latest episode of InBeta. I'm Charles Bradley, GPD's Executive Director. In September, you may have heard that there was another high-profile cyber attack. Now, this time it was on Deloitte, the world's biggest accountancy firm, which offers its services to banks, government agencies and large Fortune 500 multinationals. As hacks go, this isn't huge in scale. Deloitte said only six of its clients were affected, but others are claiming 350 clients have had their information and correspondence exposed. But whatever account you believe, what's certain is that this hack was meticulously orchestrated, complex and highly targeted. This isn't a random bug, it's a sophisticated operation. Now, this isn't the only recent high-profile cyber attack. In August this year, it happened to Equifax, what some have called the worst data breach in history, exposing the personal data of 143 million customers. In May, we had WannaCry, 100,000 businesses affected, hospitals and ambulance services brought to a standstill. Before that, we had Ashley Madison and perhaps the most famous, the Sony Picture attack. So since around 2013, there's a clear trend. Cyber attacks are becoming increasingly common, complex and disastrous. Now, I want to unpack that word, disastrous. There's the the financial cost of breaches, of course, which is predicted to rise to $2.1 trillion globally by 2019, according to one report. But there's also the human cost. Because when we talk of data being compromised, we're not just talking about email addresses or passwords. In many cases, it's incredibly sensitive personal information that's being exposed. Medical records, search histories, credit card transaction records, and home addresses. When this data leaks, it isn't just a problem for businesses or governments. It has significant implications for the human rights of those affected. Privacy, of course, being the the obvious one. But these breaches can also affect someone's ability to express themselves or even put their physical safety at risk. This might come as a surprise to those who, who follow the mainstream cybersecurity debates. These are typically framed as a systems issue, something for the the security agencies and technical actors to sort out. And other stakeholders, notably civil society, rarely get a look in. Now you might ask here, you know, so what? What's the problem with security agencies dealing with cybersecurity problems? Isn't that what the security agencies are for? There are a few problems with it. First, the lack of alternative perspectives or accountability in these processes and conversations means that the laws, the standards, the the norms and measures which emerge can often end up harming human rights, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We've seen cybersecurity laws, for example, that impose very broad restrictions on, on online activities or introduce new forms of surveillance. And this is happening all around the world, in the global north and, of course, in the global south. Even worse, there's lots of evidence that these laws and policies don't even help keep us secure. The big recent US cybersecurity legislation, CISA, is a case in point. Rather than making systems more secure, it actually creates new backdoors which could be exploited by hackers. Would this have happened if a wider range of voices, including civil society, were meaningfully included? Maybe not. So what's important to emphasise is that encouraging a more inclusive, multi-stakeholder approach to policymaking isn't just about respecting rights. It's also about making everything in cyberspace, including systems, more secure. People are waking up to this. More and more forums are acknowledging the importance of multi-stakeholder approaches in cyber policymaking. But actual examples of multi-stakeholder cyber policy processes on the ground, close to zero. 
So today on InBeta, rather than just talking about multi-stakeholderism in the abstract, we're actually going to bring together uh, multiple stakeholders to talk about cybersecurity and cyber attacks, to see if we can find common ground and a way forward on these issues. My first guest, Gauss, in a sense embodies more than one stakeholder position. He's keyed into the technical side of cybersecurity as first, which represents computer emergency response teams, or CERTs, globally. For those who don't know, a CERT is basically an expert group that handles computer security incidents. That might be at a local level, like a university, or at the national level. But he also has a day job in the private sector, and will be able to talk a bit from that perspective as well. And my other guest is Matthew Shears, GPD's lead strategist, who's coming at this issue from more of a civil society human rights angle. He's currently working on a framework to help actors create multi-stakeholder cyber policies, which I'm sure we'll touch on in our conversation. Gauss, Matthew, welcome. Great. Well, I'm going to start with Gauss. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your work um, and how it relates to cyber threats? So, definitely. At the moment, I am board member of FIRST, and FIRST stands for Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. So that is an international forum where certs can come together, share experiences, and learn from each other. So you may say that, yes, I, I am kind of involved in cybersecurity because, as I said, FIRST is about dealing with cybersecurity incidents, and that is where people who are doing this day in, day out, they come together and they talk to each other and they talk to us. And we've talked a little bit already about the sort of general trend in, in, in cybersecurity at the moment. What's the mood music like among certs? Is there a, a sense of urgency? Are they fearing the future? <laughs> uh, future, I don't believe that people are fearing the future. They are always slightly uh, apprehensive because you don't know what will future bring. Usually, in our case, it brings more troubles, more different kind of attacks, more problems. But then again, that is something that, that we are used to deal with, and that is part of the job. So it comes with the territory and you, you just go on. Uh, general feeling is that, yes, we will see more of everything. So we will see more issues, more problems, situations which are unfolding much faster than previously, meaning that attacks are being automated instead of attack that is protracted across, I don't know, two, three days, you will see something that is happening in a span of two, three seconds. And we would need to be ready to respond in the same timeline, that we recognize the threat and respond to a threat within a few seconds. Um, Matt, you've just uh, finished working on a, on a report uh, for, the, for the Internet Society, looking at some of these issues. What are the, what are the key sort of takeaways from that report as they relate to cybersecurity? Yeah, thanks, uh, Charles. It's, it's very much, as, as Gauss says, it's, um, it's about levels of complexity now. We're seeing um, increasing number of implications, increasing number of actors impacted by cybersecurity attacks. Um, I think it's fair to say that looking forward, we're going to see the complexity of these attacks increase uh, significantly as we become more connected, as we become hyper-connected, if you will. Um, and we see these Internet, uh, Internet of Things devices, we see smart homes, we see increasingly smart cars, all which pose, uh, well, they on one hand they offer these wonderful um, conveniences, but all which pose at the same time these, these uh, attack vectors. And I think that's something that's of, of significant for, uh, concern going forward. So taking a step back and thinking 
bit more about the bigger picture here. And Matt, a lot of your work at Global Partners has been about the finding multi-stakeholder approaches to cybersecurity policy making. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's important? Yeah, thanks, Charles. It, it is important because, uh, as we've just been saying, the complexity of the attacks is increasing. The, the number of parties and stakeholders that are impacted is increasing. Um, the diversity of ways of these attacks are impacting society and economy is increasing. And so when one thinks about the responses or the policy approaches that are needed to um, deal with these kind of attacks, we really have to think in a new model, in a new way. And so the multi-stakeholder model allows for bringing different types of expertise and more um, inclusive approach to cyber policy making, which I think and we'll see in the long term um, brings different expertise and mostly brings about more effective and more targeted and and hopefully more um, really more holistic approaches to cyber attacks. I think that's the real benefit of the multi-stakeholder approach. And within that context, what's the role of civil society? Like what have they got to say about any of this stuff? Well, the role of civil society is important. I mean, traditionally, civil society has been um, kind of um, pigeonholed as being an important player because of the role it has vis-a-vis -vis the community, which is absolutely true. But increasingly, we're seeing these kind of stakeholder these stakeholder terms and uh, beginning to merge. And I think that there are many in civil society who have the kind of expertise that we'd want to see around the table, not just in human rights, but also technological expertise, also expertise in different spaces that will have increasing relevance as, we, as the cyber attacks increase in their diversity. And Gauss, to, to come to you on this, uh, the question as well, you're, we've talked earlier today about um, some certs being more open uh, to a civil society perspective and actually incorporating them more in, in, in their sort of policy making. Um, why do you think that might be? What's, what's this trend about? Yeah, so uh, Charles, can I just, before answering that question, I would like to go back to, to something that Matt said earlier about multi-stakeholder approach. And uh, sometimes people are seeing that, okay, so now we have more people who are attacking the problem and then just takes much longer to come to the conclusion. However, the way I would like to look at that is that we are, in reality, preloading stuff. So at the end, we will have to spend the same amount of time, maybe even more, if we have to go back and then revisit things that have been made. By putting all that effort at the beginning, when we are creating and making plans for everything, yes, it may take a little bit longer to come to consensus, but then when we will have consensus, we will not have to revisit it that often. So, that, uh, just one observation. So, uh, going back to your question, Charles. Uh, so, involvement of uh, civil society in a, in, in a CSIRT work is interesting because at the moment there is not much touching point between uh, CSIRT and civil societies. Having said that, it doesn't mean that there are no touching points. It just means that CSIRTs are not engaging civil societies as much as they should and as they could. My belief is that CSIRTs, by and large, are probably not yet ready for that kind of conversation. So as any other organization, CSIRTs, they also evolve in what they are doing and how they are doing. First, have done uh, recently went through a process to define a CSIRT framework, basically give you uh, ideas of what CSIRT may want to do. We started with a document that was 14 years old, 16 years old, and when we revisited it, 
uh, be discovered that Caesars had moved from what used to be what they are usually doing to now what they are doing. And that shift is mainly moving from purely technical perspective into more policy makers. And that is where Caesars are now. So Caesars now are more engaging with the policy makers. The next step, obviously, is to in, in broaden that engagement and include civil societies. So, again, we are not there yet, but I do believe that we will reach that point. And I think just to come to, to Matt on this, um, we're talking about them not being ready. Um, so what role can civil society play in sort of getting them ready for greater um, uh, stakeholder engagement and a, and a broader sort of consultation on, on their policies? I think there's plenty of opportunity for civil society and other stakeholders to sit down and to explore some of these issues, if only in, a, in, a, in an informal way at first, um, to find out where there are common interests um, and how there might be complementarities between the way we address issues. So I think that's really important. And, and to a point that Gauss also made a little bit earlier, I think the, the notion that we can address these challenges in a siloed approach, it just doesn't work anymore. And I think that's the reality that we have to deal with. And obviously for government, that's a hard reality. Um, but I think at the end of the day, as, as Gauss said, preloading these policy discussions with um, more expertise, more diverse views, um, more capable uh, participants, more focus, I think is really the, the approach that we need to start looking at. So a more perhaps informal and more collegial and more um, um, formative way of dealing with these kind of challenges. So one of the things I also wanted to raise was um, this idea of a, a framework for assessing and measuring um, how multi-stakeholder different policy processes are. Um, and this is really something that's come out of the huge number of requests from governments and other stakeholders for um, policy processes to be open and inclusive. And so uh, at Global Partners, we've, um, we've developed this framework which sets out um, a series of stages which a policy process should uh, move through, and also a set of characteristics which says how open the process is, um, how inclusive it is, how transparent it is, how accountable it is. And we're finding um, that this is being used by a number of partners and also is being um, adapted to local circumstances and is proving to be quite successful in providing a framing for how you implement multi-stakeholder processes across different policy spaces. And Gauss, with your other hat on, I'm going to come to you about sort of the role of the private sector um, in, in these conversations. Sort of what do you see as the role of the private sector and, and how can civil society engage with the private sector on, on, on cybersecurity conversations? So I would say it is probably similar like with the CSERT. So uh, yes, I, I do have a day job uh, apart from being involved in the first. I, I do work for a commercial company and uh, we are and especially my company is probably a little bit special in that regard because they are paying attention a lot to uh, well-being of employees but also on well-being people who will be using our products. We do even have a special uh, things but since this is not commercial <laughs> station <laughs> I would refrain from going further. So yes, commercial organizations they need to get involved. They need to understand what is the problems and what people who will be using their products, how they will approach to that. All of that, again, even looking for a purely selfish perspective, it, if nothing else, it would help organizations and companies to create a better product. Better product means that people will be more inclined to use it. And we see that nowadays already. 
companies who are making a really good, nice products, which are easy to use, sleek, secure, people are buying them. Up until a few years ago, people did not have a notion that they need this product. And nowadays, people cannot live with, with some of them. So that is, I believe, future and where we may go. Are you saying there that the security has become the competitive advantage? Oh, definitely, definitely it is. And it has been for, for a number of years already. So uh, people may not be aware of it, but it, uh, when nowadays, when organizations are doing, doing procurement and they ask for, for a tender, there is always a special section in the tender that talks exactly about security. So if somebody will provide me a service, then the question will be asked, okay, what capabilities do you have as a provider that you will offer to me? On what levels maturity you are? How good you are at what you are doing and everything else? So definitely security plays a huge uh, differentiator between products. So how do we get human rights to be that differentiator? How do we turn just from the security lens that we're seeing this as, as a sort of a more human rights approach and seeing the human rights become the competitive advantage? So obviously it would depend with whom you are talking within a company. Uh, if you are talking with the technical people who are doing the actual development and design, in that case I would say uh, if you are talking about more concrete instances of what human rights are, it would be better for them and easier for them to understand. If you are talking uh, with higher ups in a company, uh, with C-level uh, people, in that case, I believe that just simply talking about benefits, how people can develop themselves and grow themselves as a persons by basing and, and obeying human rights, I believe that that message will be heard. Amazing. Matt, one of the, um, the, the sort of key documents that you've worked on in the, in the last couple of years has been the FOC, the Freedom Online Coalition's Working Group 1 recommendations for cybersecurity and human rights. Um, thinking about this conversation, where this is going, what, what part of that or what sort of key messages from that are, are useful for us as human rights defenders to be, to be using in our conversations with businesses and the technical community and, and governments? Yeah, this... this um is uh, dovetails very nicely with this comment about um, um, what's the value of security because there there is really I think um, a great common interest across consumers across business across technology companies um, and in many ways the issue of human rights also is important to the reputation and um, and the brand of companies as well many companies have corporate social responsibility programs they see value in that and human rights is an important part of that but there's another dimension too. No company wants to suffer breaches of data or data loss or have secure devices no longer be secure or have vulnerabilities. And all of those things impact human rights as well, privacy um, in particular. And so I think there's a, a great synergy, if you will, in this new increasingly connected world where we can find these, these stakeholders coming together and finding more purpose. And we've built that into these working group, uh, this Freedom Online Coalition working group recommendations where we talk about the imperative of, the, of products, of policies being rights respecting by design. And I think that's a, we talk about privacy by, by design um, and hopefully we're talking about security by design. But when we think about the importance of human rights respecting by design, that brings another dimension to it. And I think that's something that hopefully we'll see more companies, more policies um, look to adopting in the future. Thanks, Matthew.
that's all we have time for, but that's a really interesting point to end on. I want to thank my guests, Gauss and Matthew. If you're listening to this on the GPD website, you'll find links to the framework we've been talking about, as well as our travel guide to cybersecurity policy on the right-hand side of the page. And if you're on SoundCloud or iTunes and you want to find these resources, just go to www.gp-digital.org and go to the cybersecurity section. Until next time, goodbye.